Good morning. Today's scripture reading is from Mark chapter 1, verses 4 through 11. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair, with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. These are our sacred stories. Thanks be to God. Every year of my childhood, I attended vacation Bible school. Vacation Bible school began with an opening assembly. We sang songs, we prayed, and we processed the American flag, the Christian flag, and the Bible. And then, with hands on our hearts, we said a pledge of allegiance to each one. On January 6th, the Christian flag was carried by terrorists into the Capitol building. I don't know that everyone recognized it. It was wrapped in on itself and may have looked like any white flag. It was not a white flag of surrender. Had it been waved, everyone would have seen the blue corner with the red cross. It wasn't just the Christian flag on display on January 6th. There were also signs saying, Jesus saves, Jesus 2020. A large wooden cross was erected. Christian slogans were on t-shirts and in shouts. As I saw these images and as I've seen them again and again, I keep thinking of that old hymn, Onward Christian Soldiers. Maybe you didn't sing this hymn, but I certainly did. Onward Christian soldiers marching as to war, with the cross of Jesus going on before. Christ the royal master leads against the foe, forward into battle see his banners go. I do not believe that what we saw and acted on January 6th, the attempted coup, the sedition, the terrorism. I don't think that's what the hymn writer, a British man writing in the 1800s, meant to be encouraging. Claiming Christianity while enacting violence on our democracy is Christian nationalism, which is not the same thing as Christianity. The Baptist Joint Committee on Religious Liberty notes, Christian nationalism seeks to merge Christian and American identities, distorting both the Christian faith and America's constitutional democracy. Christian nationalism demands Christianity be privileged by the state and implies that to be a good American, one must be a Christian. It often overlaps with and provides cover for white supremacy and racial subjugation. Christian nationalists tend to use the language of religious freedom in describing their efforts to promote Christianity and give it special protections. 
This is not religious freedom. Religious freedom means protecting religious liberty for all, not just the privileged few. Religious freedom is guarded when there is no government sponsorship, no discrimination, no preference. Christian nationalism idealizes and advocates a fusion of Christianity with American civic life, believing that the American nation is defined by Christianity and that the government should take steps to keep it that way, to sustain and maintain its believed Christian heritage. Believing that the United States of America has been and should continue to be a Christian nation is Christian nationalism. Many of the terrorists who attacked the Capitol, who searched for Vice President Mike Pence and House Speaker Nancy Pelosi looking for them in order to do them harm, who beat officers with flagpoles and one officer to death with a fire extinguisher. Many of those terrorists claim to be acting in the name of God and the name of Christianity. They used Christianity as a kind of pretext, trying to lend credibility and social acceptability to their terrorism. We do not have a Christian flag in our sanctuary at 4949 Caroline Street. We do not have an American flag. Every summer of Camp Community, our own version of Vacation Bible School, we say no pledges of allegiance. This does not mean that we have no loyalties. This does not mean that there is nothing we are following or giving our allegiance to. It does not mean that we are not patriotic. Patriotic. It means that patriotism to our country is not housed in our house of worship to the God of love who shows no favoritism to one country over another. Jesus calls us to follow him, to make our allegiance to the kingdom of God, a kingdom of love and peace and justice that includes all people of every nation and land. On this Sunday, we read of Jesus beginning his public ministry by going to the river to align himself with the teachings of John the Baptist. Mark doesn't say much about the times in which John and Jesus find themselves. Matthew simply locates John in those days. But the Gospel of Luke notes, in the 15th year of the reign of Emperor Tiberius, when Pontius Pilate was governor over Judea and Herod was ruler of Galilee, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Scholars of history tell us that Tiberius's 15th year was one of particular political chaos. Daily administration of the government had passed into the hands of a man named Lucius Sejanus, who used his considerable power to purge people at the highest levels of government. He did away with anyone he perceived to be his enemies or rivals. 
Sejanus greatly influenced Tiberius's rule, while Caesar himself was all but retired. Pontius Pilate is among the powerful mentioned during this time that the word of God came to John. Pilate, who when faced with the choice to save Jesus, chose instead to wash his hands of murder. And Herod, of course, is the same Herod who spoke with the wise ones and ordered the execution of those baby boys in and around Bethlehem. The priests, Annas and Caiaphas, were reportedly lining their pockets with gold from the empire while their people struggled and starved to pay taxes. This is the time that the word came to John in the wilderness, a time of great political abuse. And John, hearing the word of God, spoke bravely and authentically about repentance. Mark does not give many details about John's ministry, but in Luke's gospel, we read as John shouts, bear fruits worthy of repentance. Do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our ancestor, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. Even now the axe is lying at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And so the crowds who've come to hear him, who've come to be baptized, who've come for answers, they say, what then should we do? And in reply, John says, whoever has two coats must share with anyone who has none, and whoever has food must do likewise. Even the tax collectors came to be baptized, and they asked John, teacher, what should we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than the amount prescribed for you. And soldiers also asked, And what should we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusation, and be satisfied with your wages. And the Bible says the people were filled with expectation. John makes clear that he's offering a baptism of repentance. He cries, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And John connects repentance with action. The people coming to John for repentance and to be baptized, they ask, what should we do? And John tells them, you should act. You should share. You should be just and satisfied. Jesus comes to be baptized to align himself with the teaching of John, to dedicate himself to the realm of God, to associate himself with the oppressed over against the oppressor. Jesus gives his allegiance to the realm of God's peace and justice. He aligns himself with John's ministry and ministry of repentance. Connecting repentance with the kingdom of God and with action locates repentance beyond personal sin. This is not just about what I do and what you do. It's about what we do together. We're all part of a system. We're part of a culture. We're part of a culture of white supremacy and misogyny and heteronormativity. 
We're part of these systems, and they will continue to abuse, hate, and slaughter unless we together change them. We're, we're also part of the kingdom of God. We're part of the ongoing work of peace and justice and love. Which realm gets our allegiance? Which realm do we pledge our lives to? I wonder if you've ever heard the pledge to the Christian flag. I memorized it years ago in the hot sun of South Carolina. I pledge allegiance to the Christian flag and to the Savior for whose kingdom it stands, one brotherhood uniting all Christians in service and in love. I can get behind many of those words. It's not a bad pledge. It's not a bad flag. It's how the pledge, the flag, the symbols of Christianity are being abused. That's the problem. Jesus was political, absolutely. He preached and lived and taught an alternative kingdom to oppressive Rome, and the empire killed him for it. He went to the capital. He rode in on a donkey. He carried no weapons. The people gathered at his protest march, waved palm branches, and shouted, Hosanna. They were not a violent mob. Jesus taught non-violence. Turn the other cheek, he said. If you're conscripted by a soldier of the empire to carry his pack for one mile, don't just carry it one mile, carry it two, he said. Let the little children come to me, for to such as these belongs the kingdom of God, he said. Your kingdom come on earth, he said, he prayed, he lived. Jesus comes to the river to be baptized by John. He aligns himself with John's teaching of repentance and sharing and justice. In the same chapter as today's lection we read, now after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee proclaiming the good news of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. My friends, the kingdom of God has come near. It is here. It is here. It is already here even as it is arriving. And so we must repent. The time is now. We must not wait. We must realign ourselves with Jesus and with John. We must repent for our silence and for being swept along in the currents of our culture. Nearly a decade after the Montgomery bus boycott, Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. offered the Oberlin College commencement address. He said, It may well be that we will have to repent in this generation not merely for the vitriolic works and violent actions of the bad people, but for the appalling silence and indifference of the good people who sit around and say, wait on time. Somewhere we must come to see that human progress never rolls in on the wheels of inevitability. It comes through the tireless efforts 
and the persistent work of dedicated individuals. Without this hard work, time becomes an ally of the primitive forces of social stagnation. So we must help time and realize that the time is always right to do right. We must help time. No more waiting. We cannot keep silent about Christian nationalism. We cannot keep silent about racism. We cannot keep silent about oppression and injustice. We cannot pretend everything is fine. There's too much at stake. We must repent, not just with our words, but with our actions. Those coming to John at the river, they ask, what then should we do? This question echoes throughout my being. I feel like it's a question I've been begging for answers to. And the answers are right here. John has some very practical suggestions about sharing, about not exploiting others. Jesus adds to these suggestions with words about nonviolence, about loving our neighbors and our enemies. Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. adds answers. In these days, I'm looking to leaders like Reverend William Barber and the other leaders of the Poor People's Campaign for additional answers. What then should we do? The prophets all agree that repentance must be part of what we do, and they all agree that exploitation and oppression must end. What should we do? Here's one thing. In the worship notes, you'll find two web links. One is to the Poor People's Campaign, 14 Policy Priorities to Heal the Nation, a Moral and Economic Agenda for the First 100 Days. And the other is to the Baptist Joint Committee for Religious Liberty. It's to their statement, Christians Against Christian Nationalism. You can read these, and if you're so inspired, sign them and share them. We must consider our personal as well as our communal need for repentance, and we must begin the work of going in a new direction. I have much to repent. Silence kept when I cared more about hurting someone's feelings than about pointing out evil, inequality, racism, Christian nationalism. In action, when it all felt too hard and overwhelming, I want to align myself with Jesus. I want to follow him, follow in his nonviolent teachings. I want to work for justice and peace. This is where my allegiance lies. I am encouraged knowing that I do not do this work alone. I'm grateful for our community, for each one of you, and that we do this together. We join our voices and our efforts. We align ourselves with Jesus, who aligned himself with John. We follow Dr. King and other prophets, and we repent, and we work, and we change. May it be so this day, and always. Amen.